Buongiorno, amici miei. This is the fourth episode of the podcast Serialization of Around Serie A in 20 Days by me, Michael Nimmo. Today's chapter is a wee bit different from the others. The book's called Around Serie A in 20 Days because that's what I did. I went to watch all 20 teams in Serie A play a home match. But for any football or Serie A novices, some background might be helpful to understand the mentality and the organisation of fans here. This episode will start to talk about that. In the meantime, the website where you can find out more, buy the book or read my blog is, as always, www.michaelnimmo.com. You may also be able to tell that I still have a bit of a cold, but I'm surviving, I'm surviving. So, join me now as we start to think about the ascent of the fan. And the fan was born, the evolution of spectators. Serious sport has nothing to do with fair play. It is bound up with hatred, jealousy, boastfulness, disregard of all rules and sadistic pleasure in witnessing violence. In other words, it is war minus the shooting. So said George Orwell. If the idea of this book is to visit every team and to observe and interview as many supporters as I can, then before we go any further, we have to think about what kind of supporters there are. It's such a catch-all word, and not exclusive to the sporting world. Sure, it brings to mind the frequently slightly podgy middle-aged man caught on camera screaming in the stands, his face turning a violet shade as flecks of spit fall on the unlucky sod in front of him. Or the wee kid, weeping into their hand-me-down scarf after the full-time whistle blows on their team's stay in a particular league. Equally, though, Newspapers support a given political party, or a husband supports his wife during childbirth. Both offer different kinds of backing. The latter might say, you're doing well, just keep breathing, while the press pick and choose what to print, and how to view it. It's the mix of these two that I was interested in. Those who from one week to another rejoice, suffer, and stand by their team till death do they part even if they do so through rose-tinted glasses. People, in other words, who love their team. If we looked at the average stadium in Italy, we might be able to divide the spectators into four general groups. The tribuna crowd, fair-weather fans, regular fans, and the ultras. Those from the first group, the tribuna crowd, who either pay for the best, or at least the most expensive seats, or alternatively get complimentary tickets, are absolutely not who I wanted to speak to. There you can find the owners, their guests and journalists, and while I don't have anything against them up in their quiet and comfortable seats, it's more that a. they're more likely to be fly-by-nights, people who are there because they were given the ticket for free, or folk who want to fare una bella figura, show-offs, and b. They don't normally go to the pubs I frequent before the match, so they're also quite difficult to meet. The second group, the fair weather fans, are the same in every country. They turn up for the big matches, but for the rainy Monday night against Kievo, where are they? 
The tickets they get most probably aren't for the Korva for two reasons. Firstly, that it's normally sold out for these big matches. And secondly, watching the game from there isn't always the most comfortable. No sitting down, obstructed view because of flags, etc. etc. To be fair, this lack of habitual stadium attending might not be down to them. Work, children or a general disillusionment with their team or football in general might do for their dedication. As Jonathan Mailer, a New York Times writer, suggested in his 2011 essay, being a fan is a young man's game. He said, Most men hit their peak of fandom as teenagers before starting an inevitable decline into a state of relative apathy. By the time we reach our middle age, our lives, work, wives, children have overtaken us. As examples, at least superficially, of adults leading adult lives, we should probably admire the fact that they seem to have reached conventional wisdom's goal, a family and work to pay for it. Again though, my targets for interviews weren't these guys, who in combination with the Tribona crowd, Roy Keane memorably and sneeringly referred to as the Prawn Sandwich Brigade. The third general group is the regular fan. It's in this group that I'd put myself on the scale of things. Committed in the sense that the person either goes frequently or has a season ticket, ideally for the Korva. A joiner in of songs, this is someone who feels passionately about the team but isn't a member of any supporters group. They are, I'd say, the majority of folk in the Korva up and down the country, bridging the gap between the sometimes fan and the fanatic. Speaking of which, the fanatics, the final group, and one I'd argue is an essential part of the stadium atmosphere, are the ultras. Essere ultras esserlo nella mente. Being an ultra is a state of mind, and sette giorni su sette, seven days a week, are just a couple of slogans that ultras use to demonstrate that they don't mess about when it comes to their team and their support of it. In the stadium, if there is a flag being waved, a song being started, or a flare being held, nine times out of ten, it's being done by an ultra. Beyond this, a couple of people have told me that they participate in extracurricular activities, which I took to mean as fighting, as one of them added immediately Hool's pride. That part of their character I can do without, but you have to take the rough with the smooth, although as we'll see later on, some of these extracurricular activities are giving the authorities enough rope to hang the ultras with. These last two types of spectator, the regular fans and the ultras, were more the kind of people that I was interested in hearing from. The stadia are, apart from a few exceptions, old and not fit for purpose. But in the face of this, thousands of people flock, adding their colour and noise to the decaying old structures. Like the concept of monarchy in the 21st century, we forget what it actually is that we're looking at, and let ourselves get carried away in the pageantry, flair and enthusiasm. Apart from the fact that the stadia themselves aren't up to much, they're still a world away from those in Britain. An ultras match day's work is evident every Sunday, from a sold-out San Siro for the Milanese clubs, to a relatively bare Bentegodi when Kievo are at home. Enormous flags are unfurled and waved for the duration of the match, vaunting the team, a particular player, or simply bearing the group's name. 
It's rare to find plastic flags left by the club on spectators' seats here. Banners are strung along anything that'll hold them, normally with such and such's supporters' club and their place of origin. Those more spontaneous carry messages insulting an opposition team or player, or something more current and in the news. There are also ones that I didn't understand for the first season or so, those that say, Ciao, insert name. I always thought those were what they seemed, a welcome or greeting to a friend who I imagined had returned to the stadium after some time, or perhaps who was celebrating a birthday or similar. It took me a while to realise that these were quite the opposite. They were bidding farewell, adio, to an old friend who had died recently. Somewhere, sooner or later, someone will let off a flare or a paper bomb, adding to the spectacle. These things are potentially dangerous. Something might catch fire, or through careless handling, someone might lose a finger. Having said that, be honest. When you see coloured smoke start rolling out of one of the stands, do you not wish you were there to see it in person? Then, there are the songs and chants that are encouraged, incited, in some parts of some kurve, even demanded. The fans being the twelfth man is as hoary and worn an idea as that which says that it's not guns that kill people, but people that kill people. Regarding the latter case, guns don't work without a person holding them, and so are pointless without a finger pulling the trigger. In a similar vein, football matches exist without people watching them, but they're void of meaning. Perhaps the team can improve their standing in a league or qualify for the next round of a cup, and the players will have had a good workout, but if no one's there to see it, who cares? After all, if a tree falls in a wood and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Equally, if a referee makes a wrong call but no one's paying attention, is he still a wanker? Of course, football can exist in places where people aren't waving flags, shouting till they're hoarse, or tossing flares onto the pitch. I'm sure any football match in those places might be just as entertaining and enthralling a contest as a match here, but given the choice, I know where I'd rather be. It's more than just the contest, it's also the context which matters. The work of art assumes the existence of the perfect spectator and is indifferent to the fact that no such person exists. So said E. M. Forster. So, now that we have a broad idea of who goes, and before we look further at supporters in a modern context, it might be useful to have a brief, and it will be, books could and indeed have been written on this very subject, highlights package of the history of football supporters and their evolution over the years. Ever since the Roman Empire used bread and circuses to keep the masses placated, sport has acted as a diversion for the people. From gladiators to archery, through chasing a lump of cheese down a hill in Gloucestershire, to the old form of football played in Florence, called Calcio Storico Fiorentino, the sporting spectacle has always had a place in our lives. Football has elbowed and kicked most other sports into second place, until they're left sitting on their arses in its wake with a dazed look. It's no coincidence that the traditional kick-off time for football matches in Britain is three o'clock on a Saturday. Workers, who had followed the changing labour world from the countryside into rapidly industrialising cities, used to finish their shifts at lunchtime on Saturdays. In this way, the stadium acted as the start of their weekend downtime, but also acted 
is the first tentative steps that they took in adopting to city life. Football offered the popular classes the chance to take part in urban life, thus reinforcing the feeling of belonging to their city, commented Andrea Ferreri in his book Ultras e Ribelli del Calcio. Ferreri argues that football matches, in conjunction with increasing urbanisation in the post-First World War years, saw the concept of the fan being created. Out went the partial but educated spectator, and in came those who identified with the team out on the pitch, and backed with passion and enthusiasm. The fan was born, and with it, acts of aggression, pitch invasions, and insulting the referee. The media were quick to report and criticise this new phenomenon as being uncivilised and base, without exploring the why or how to try to resolve it. Generally speaking, it was, however, tolerated by the powers that be, as the ire of the fans was normally turned on each other and so didn't threaten the status quo. This state continued until the outbreak of war, and when the dust settled and countries, cities and lives were rebuilt as best they could be, Italy would change dramatically. In just ten years, from the mid-fifties to the mid-sixties, a surge in manufacturing had turned Italy from a relatively backward agricultural country into one of the world's most powerful modern economies. GDP grew on average 6% every year, and industrial production doubled at a rate faster than any other country, with the exception of Japan and perhaps West Germany. This manufacturing explosion was based around the northwest, Turin, Milan and Genoa, and saw the production of fridges, 18,500 in 1951, jumping to 3.2 million in 1967. Washing machines and cars. In 1967, Fiat was selling more cars in Europe than any other manufacturer. This led to vastly greater exportation. In 1955, 23% of Italian products were sent across the Alps to EEC countries. By 1965, this had increased to 40%. Along with societal changes, the increased education, wealth and leisure time that the baby boomers enjoyed led to the birth of the teenager in Italy, just as it did elsewhere. No longer would young men dress in suit and tie in their free time, but as an exciting new market to be exploited, they proved to be a boon for manufacturers. Society had taken its first steps to being the consumer-based model that we see today. Indeed, the most popular TV programme in the early 60s was Carosello, as described by Duggan in The Force of Destiny as being a 10-minute compilation of comedy sketches, cartoons, stories, songs and music, framing a series of advertisements for the latest products now on offer. Before the war, the son of a butcher would most likely become a butcher, and that of a miner would follow his dad's grimy steps. Now, though, life's path was less rigid than it had been, with more opportunities and more hope. The somewhat clunky phrase of the day was more wealth and equal opportunities for social, political and economic growth for everyone. Italian ultras groups took inspiration from their English contemporaries in terms of fashion, music and behaviour. However, there were a couple of key distinctions between the English and Italian models of fan participation and action. The first was in terms of the group's priorities. Whereas in England the groups would defend their end from incursions from visitors, in Italy 
the concentration was more on the group as a whole. Or rather, instead of the location, the focus in Italy was on those who filled it. On many occasions, an attacking group managed to steal a flag of the opposing faction, which was a great insult for the robbed. The other defining feature that was present in the Italian style, as well as in other European countries, but which has rarely developed in English groups, was an emphasis on politics. Italian fans, like their counterparts in Britain, were generally young men. However, whereas in Britain class came to be a uniting feature among supporters, in Italy the characteristics that were valued in the Spalti terraces were confrontation, strength and a dislike of authority and opposition. But what events and conditions aided or caused these fans to form groups, whose descendants we see today? In 1968, Italy, like many other countries, saw an awakening of civil unrest. Along with France, Italy had one of the most profound movements of students and workers standing side by side in protest. The economic boom that we've already heard about was felt above all by the bourgeois and the ruling class, and the full potential of it hadn't trickled down to improve the social and economic conditions of the lower classes, as had been promised. Students staged sit-ins, starting in 66, which were only called off in order to help the worst affected areas of the north and central regions that were struck by heavy flooding later that year. This volunteer force helped foster a feeling of unity among the student class, and the movement continued. In May 68, every university in the country, apart from Milan's Bocconi, was occupied. All this time, they were met by repressive and aggressive policing, which only served to spread the unrest and rebellion. At the same time as the students were demonstrating, the working class were also agitating for improvements in their lot. For example, at Fiat, which as previously noted was Europe's number one car manufacturer, the workers were revolting. Sabotage on its production lines led to thousands of cars being destroyed and the management reacted by suspending 25,000 of its staff. After three months without pay, Fiat's home city, Torino, was essentially closed for business. The paralysis of the city was even worse than during the war, but four days before Christmas, the management agreed to the trade union's demands, which would later form the basis for the country's workers' charter. The left and the right struggled together for the common cause in the early years of these protests. This unity was not to last, however, and while the 70s saw an increase in support for Marxism and the left among young Italians, by that stage the students' movement had become so dominated by the left that a splinter group, the European Students' Movement, had been founded, which was more inclined to the right. The 1960s came to a dramatic close in December 69, with the Strage di Piazza Fontana, the Piazza Fontana massacre in Milan. Seventeen people died when a bomb exploded in the middle of the afternoon, and while it was speculated that neo-fascists were responsible, three days after the explosion, an anarchist who was being questioned as a suspect, Pino Pinelli, jumped or was pushed out of the fourth floor of the police headquarters. It was recorded as suicide, with foul play ruled out in the death of the man, who, after being asked to come to the station for questioning, had followed the police car in on his scooter. His questioning, which lasted 72 hours, was inconclusive.
What does all of this have to do with Calcio, though? All of the unrest, in conjunction with the increasing politicisation of younger generations, made its way into football stadia. The first ultras group came to life in these years, and it's perhaps no coincidence that the majority of them were left-orientated rather than right. The leftist parties paid greater attention to these younger people than those of the right, and the success they had in engaging with them was visible in the terraces, as well as in the universities, factories and streets. This continued until the 80s, when groups started to turn towards the right. This volt face is still in evidence today, when groups with sympathies to the right outweigh those on the left. The right had developed techniques to find greater success in the stands, and when the left took their eye off supporters, the right moved in. An increase in xenophobia and nationalism was evident, and as Ferreri says, infiltration of the extreme right in the Corve was easy through parties like Forza Nuova. Part of the responsibility for this belongs to the parties of the left, who had displayed indifference and criminalised the world of the ultras. In the 90s, politics in the Corve was intensifying, often changing the ultras and their ethics. Moreover, in many cases it became a pretext for finding new enemies and new alliances. This adoption of politics often came to be shown through songs, banners and flyers or fanzines produced by the ultras. The politicisation of many corve that had previously been more or less apolitical was a gift for some parties or politicians who would try to capitalise on these congregations of people in election campaigns. Valerio Marchi on this subject said, Many young people that defended their patch from enemies during the week and struggled against the police and the system took these conflicts with them to the stadium. It was these guys who brought new forms of organisation of a typically political nature to the fan base, thus distinguishing the Italian model from that of the British. The political sympathies of some supports wasn't always fully thought out though, as Ferreri adds. On this subject there was a great deal of ignorance, and sometimes the Corve embraced a political ideology only because it was in contrast to their historical rivals. So, although many Corve appeared to be politicised, few were really informed or passionate enough to truly stake a claim to one part of the political spectrum. Ferreri goes on to say, certainly, some Corve, like Lazio's, Verona's or Livorno's, and a few others, had taken on a defined political character, but in most other cases the unity of the Corva took precedent over any particular political ideology. The fruits of this politicisation of ultras groups can be seen today. A report into the number and makeup of ultras groups in Italy in 2013 showed that there were a grand total of 388 groups, who between them had around 41,000 members. Of these groups, 45 were said to be of the extreme right, 15 of the extreme left, and 9 that were a mix of the two. While the Corve were becoming politicised for good or for bad, the church's grip on society was weakening. The state broadcasting company, RAI, was founded in 1954, and while the church fretted about the new consumerist values that it carried, Pope Pius XII tried to look on the bright side of things, as it gave the entire family the possibility of honest pleasures together, away from the perils of an unhealthy company and unhealthy places. 
Of course, the church still had enormous institutional power. The Vatican wasn't going to disappear overnight, and in 1956, Rai's chief executive was forced to resign after the broadcaster tried to make amends following a live show of ballerinas dancing in almost transparent tights, which was said to have caused the Pope to hurriedly turn off his TV and rush to prayer. The next broadcasts saw the dancers wear what appeared to be long johns, causing the press to strongly criticise the broadcaster for carrying down to the Vatican. Nonetheless, the economic miracle of the post-war years saw the church's hold slip. For many, increased prosperity was not made in heaven, but rather on earth, and church attendance duly suffered. In 1956, 69% of Italians attended Mass regularly on a Sunday. By 1968, this had dropped to 40%, of which only 6% could be considered devout. The drop-off in attendance was most keenly felt in the expanding suburbs of the northern cities, where only 11% of men were found to be regularly going to Mass in 1968. We've already seen that it seemed like a bright future for the younger generations, with the idea of more wealth and equal opportunities for social, political and economic growth for everyone. While not being particularly catchy, try making a hashtag out of that, it was the dream. Like Icarus, the new generation saw the sky as being the limit, but rather than trying to go too far as the Greek hero did, they found that their wings had been clipped. Not everything that the early years of peacetime had promised came true. Rather than heralding a bright new day, the economic boom proved to have been a false dawn for many. Instead of a change of guard, the status quo was maintained, and as this new generation reached their adolescence in the 60s, the country was riven with turmoil. This gave the disillusion something to rebel against, and as supporters, and subsequently ultras, were already forming groups of like-minded people, even if they weren't necessarily all political or had the same ideology, the die was cast for friction between the powers that be and the people. I would contend that it's no coincidence that the first ultras groups were formed in the late 60s. This was the first post-war generation, and a combination of getting bored of being told by their elders how hard life had been and how lucky they were now, and finding out that what they'd been promised was an illusion, gave them cause, or at least an excuse, to rebel. And Football Stadia gave them a place to do just this. Okay, and that's the end of that chapter. I hope, as always, that you found this interesting. Remember, www.michaelnimmo.com is the place for all your Michael Nimmo needs. In the meantime, until next week, ciao ciao! Student staged sit-ins. What's a bloody impossible thing to say?